Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for another morning and thank you for Sundays. Thank you, Father, for a time here set apart where we can open up your word. God, we have, we have grown to love Sunday mornings and, and even to see it such a priority because we want to hear from your word. So we ask, Lord, that you would bless us now. Give us understanding. Draw our hearts to the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We will pick up where we left off with 1 Peter. Last week we finished chapter 4. We've been in Peter for quite some time, and now we're into the final chapter. While you're turning to 1 Peter 5, hope everybody had a nice Independence Day, 4th of July. Hope it was good. I had forgotten how long and tiring days like that are because you're up so late. Uh, it wore us out yesterday. I also can't remember the last time that 4th of July fell on a Saturday, and so that's the night before church, and that's tiring too. And so if you're like me, you feel like you're dragging a little bit this morning, and yet tired, and yet uh, still happy to be here. And so thank you all for being here. We're thankful for our country. We're thankful for uh, the USA. We are, with great humility, proud to be Americans. We're so thankful for freedom. And I hope that on the, on the, on the, on the holiday, like 4th of July, you are mindful of the freedoms that we have here and thankful to God for those. Um, it's not just a cute little saying, freedom is not free. And we need to be mindful of that. Not only in our country, but also spiritually. And that points us to Jesus. Today we're going to get into the final chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 5. And in doing that, Peter starts to wrap things up. He starts to bring all of this persecution talk, really all this suffering talk that, is, that he's been talking about for four chapters uh, into a final perspective. And, and really, how, how are you going to deal with this? Uh, life has suffering. Our church has not held back at all in telling you that suffering comes. It is a mark of a cult or a part of Christianity that we do not agree with. If you think or if you are taught or if you are believing that if you believe enough or are close enough to God, there will be no suffering. That is just not true according to the Word of God. Christianity does bring with it suffering. Um, God says that we will enter the kingdom through suffering. And so... Uh, Peter has written a book to help them deal with the suffering that they're going through. But he concludes today's passage with a big, strong statement on humility. The passage here today is going to talk mostly to ministers, to pastors, to elders. But you'll like it. It will address you, but it will conclude by speaking to all of us on humility. It gives the idea of us being clothed in humility. I came home from work one day this week, and it was one of those days where it was really hot. The temperature wasn't necessarily that high this week, but we really had, with all this rain, we had a lot of days with high humidity, just hot, humid days. I went out in the backyard to see what the kids were doing. They're playing in the backyard, and... They're all dressed up from head to toe, mask and everything, in superhero costumes, like their Halloween costumes. So those are like legs, shirts, long sleeves, masks. Some of them are not even masks you wear. It's like masks that's connected to the shirt over your head. 
And I was so hot and sweaty that the first thing I did once I got home was put on like a sleeveless shirt and just put on some shorts. And it was just so hot. And I'm sitting there watching them and they're playing and having a good time. They're sweating. They're hot too. And so finally I said, they're complaining about how hot they are. And finally I said, can't y'all keep playing superheroes without the costume? I mean, why don't you take it off and just keep playing? And they completely opposed that idea. Can't be Hulk unless you're wearing a Hulk outfit. You can't be Captain America unless you're wearing a Captain America outfit. You can't be Iron Man unless you're wearing an Iron Man outfit. It's really hard to be the part if you're not able to look the part. That's what I was getting from my kids. And I think many of us here today have found that challenge in our own personal, spiritual lives and what it means to be a Christian. We know what it is to be the part. We are committed to the Scriptures enough to know what God says our part is. And yet, if we don't look the part, you will be continually discouraged or maybe even frustrated at your inability to be the part. So today, as we begin 1 Peter chapter 5, let's turn there now, let's look there now and read. May we hear, it's really hard to be the part if we're not going to look the part. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, all the way down to verse 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's a good passage. I laughed a little bit this morning as I was going over my sermon Not too many of you have direct dealings with your job or career or job descriptions or qualifications for your job in the Word of God. There are teachings and principles in the Word of God for your type of work. But with my type of work, God says a lot about it. And so here today, I stand before you preaching to you all about what I should be. That is very humbling. And I want to say from the outset that I I realize that I may have, I may in the future, and could possibly even right now be a disappointment to you. I could have hurt you or wronged you, uh, and I've known about it, or I could have done it and I haven't known about it. But I want you to know that even with that, we should still be committed to each other, and in love, we should have a relationship where you're able to approach me with it and According to this passage, I should receive it in humility. So here today, let's please know that this I'm not the expert pastor elder that's telling y'all how great I am. But rather, I am coming to the Scriptures as you are to see what God would have of, of me and of you all that we might be a stronger church. 
Out of nowhere, Peter seems to turn his conversation towards the leadership, the elders. But the first word in the passage is so or, or therefore, which means he's building on what he just had talked on. If you were here last week, you'll, you can, you'll remember, but look up just a little bit to chapter 4, verse 12. And he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then he goes on talking about the fiery trial or the suffering or the persecution. And so Peter has that in mind. Again, the whole book has been about that. But he has this suffering, these fiery trials that Christians must deal with in life. He has these in mind. And then he says, so I exhort the elders. The first thing he does is he wants to turn to the elders among them and get their attention on how to deal with this. Well, you may be asking, what is an elder? In the Baptist church, we often don't use the word elder that much, although there would, no, there would be no problem with it. We could or we should. Um, an elder is a leader of the church. The Bible, if you've never heard this before, please listen. The Bible lists that there are only two offices in the whole church. In any church in the world, there are only two positions of leadership, two offices, and that is elder and deacon. That's it. There should be no other titles that are legit and biblical other than elder and deacon. Those are the only two. An elder in the Bible is, is used in several different ways. The word elder, the word bishop, and the word overseer all mean the same thing. Your Bible today may not say elder. It may say bishop or overseer. It means the same thing. Elder, bishop, overseer. If you talk to anybody in another church and they say, yeah, Elder Josh, don't get confused. They're just meaning their leader. If they say bishop Josh, don't get confused. If they say overseer Josh, don't get confused. It all means the same thing. Now, it doesn't exactly mean the same thing as pastor, but it is very similar and often those are interchangeable. So what Peter's doing here is he's turning towards the leaders of the church, the pastors. Now, in the Bible you have these words, elders and, and deacons and the leadership, used a lot. The qualifications for an elder or a pastor are listed two places in the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1. If you were to look at 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, you will see a lengthy passage that says qualifications for an elder, for an overseer, for a leader in the church, for a pastor, for a minister. Here are the qualifications. Those are listed two places. Deacons are only listed in one place. 1 Timothy 3, right after the qualifications for a minister. And that's the only offices that we have. Elder and deacon. And we are not to confuse those in the church. Elders serve by leading. Deacons lead by serving. We're not to get those confused. Elders serve by leading... Deacons lead by serving. We're not to get those confused. The elders are your ones in the church that you see as your spiritual leaders, your pastors. And these should be designated. Now I want to throw out another point here. Here in our passage today, the word elders is in plural. If you search the whole Bible and you look everywhere that the word elder is used, it is almost, almost always in plural. 
There are only three places in the Bible where it's not plural. One is here where Peter says, I'm an elder. And the other two are at 2 John 1 and 3 John 1 where he's just referring to a single elder. Everywhere else in the Bible, it is plural. And many times it is referring to specifically the elders in plural over a single local church. This teaches us that it is better for churches to have multiple men in leadership rather than just one. We put too much hinging, too much stock when it's all on one person. When one person is in charge of everything, there is an opportunity for things to go wrong, for things to go south, for problems to arise. Now, we are right now a single elder church. I'm like the only one in our church that is, uh, that is technically functioning as an elder. Although we do have a staff, we have Troy as our associate pastor, Jake as our youth pastor, Mike as our worship pastor, and we have uh, several deacons. It's an interesting thought here that the Bible is often in plural. Pastor H.B. Charles points out that it is often a characteristic of cults to have one man really, really in charge that everybody else must follow. As Christians and believers in the Bible, we know we are not following a man. We are following the Word of God. We are following the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is in charge. He is our authority. And any leader in this church must be wholly and completely surrendered to Him. Our church should begin thinking about having a plurality of elders. Multiple people in charge. And this is how Peter begins. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. See there, it's in singular. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter goes first to the elders. I wonder why. Several reasons, maybe. I don't know. One is, maybe with this suffering and maybe with this persecution and these fiery trials that are coming upon the Christians, maybe those who are attacking are coming first at the leaders. That's a good move. Maybe the elders who are the ones who are facing the most persecution right now or are under the most suffering right now, and so Peter says, I want to speak to them. Or maybe it's just when we get facing trials, we look to our leaders. When your life gets heavy, or when you have questions, you look to your leaders. And so maybe Peter knows, just let me start with the elders. Because I know that their people, their church members, their flock is going to look to them. So let me start with them. However the reason, or whatever the reason it is, he does that. And he exhorts, he charges, he, he speaks with some authority and some encouragement to the elders. And he says, the elders among you... You're going to see that again, that word among. And he gives really three reasons why they should listen. He says, hey, I'm an elder too. And this is interesting because we know that Peter's an apostle. An apostle is a lot stronger than an elder. An elder is somebody that leads a church. An apostle is one of the twelve that was there with Jesus, that Jesus labeled and called and identified as an apostle. But here, because of the, the power and the connection of saying that I'm an elder too, it, it, it helps them. He, he's able to identify with them better. He doesn't even say that he's an apostle here. 
Although we know he was. The leader of the apostles. The closest one to Jesus of all of them is Peter. And he doesn't say that. He says a fellow elder. In other words, hey, I'm speaking to, to me too here. Then he says, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now that is possible because he was an apostle. He was with Jesus. We know, we've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know that Peter had spent lots of time with Jesus. He knows what Jesus went through. Thirdly, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter knows that this life that we're living, y'all, has an end to it has a consequence to it, has a result to it, has a ramification at the end of it. And for those who are in Christ, it will be glory. It will be rewarding. And for those who are not, it will be awful. It will be judgment. It will be condemnation. Peter keeps that in mind. So he says, listen, I'm writing to you fellow elders and I, I exhort you. On three levels I exhort you. Because I'm an elder, because I've seen the sufferings of Christ, and because I'm also involved in this thing that will be revealed in the glory of Christ. Peter has come to deal with the sufferings of Christians in their persecution here in verse in, in, in all of his book, in the first four chapters. And now he has come to chapter 5, verse 1. And he says, I want to speak to the elders about this. And I exhort the elders among you. You and I know that there's a weightiness and a heaviness when it's time to start addressing the leadership over something that concerns us. If you're in line at Kroger and something goes wrong and all of a sudden you say, well, can I speak to your manager? That person's going to say, uh-oh. And it doesn't necessarily mean that things are about to go bad, but it does mean there's a seriousness here. If you need to tell the manager, it means there's some importance to it. Peter begins chapter 5 by saying, I exhort the elders among you. He's going to tell the elders how to be and how to act when they and their people are under fiery trials. Chapter 4, verse 12. Folks, if we are dealing with fiery trials right now, I don't know where you're at in life, but if fiery trials are real to you, if trials are real to you, if you can see some trials coming or you just came out of some trials or maybe you're in the very middle of a trial, we have come to the very passage that we need to hear. Because Paul, or Peter is going to speak to us. He's even going to speak to the leaders among us. And then he gives these elders, these leaders, these pastors three things that he wants them to do. Look at verse 2. The three things that he's going to tell them are three words that I'm going to give you that start with W if you're taking notes. Will, which means God's will. Willingly, which means they want to. And then watch, which means others will watch them as examples. Will, willingly, and watch. Will, willingly, and watch. At verse 2 he says, shepherd, here's what he's telling them to do. 
Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. What a strong statement. Peter says, God would have you to do it this way. That's hard when the boss or the one in charge comes to you and says, here's how I, the one in charge, would have you do your job. All of us have heard somebody say, don't tell me how to do my job. I know how to get it done, and I'll do it. As long as it gets done, it'll get done. And God comes and says, no, here's how I would have you to do it. To which nobody should say, yeah, but what about my way? Okay, God, you have your way. Then we elders, pastors, should take a step back or rather a, knee, a kneel down and say, okay, what is your way, God? What is God's will in eldership? What is God's will in being a pastor of church? What is God's will in, in, in men of God saying, listen, there's fiery trials all among us, but I will be the one to lead you in the right direction to the truth out of sin in these fiery trials. That's heavy. But God, it is God's will. It is God's will that there would be leaders in the church. It is God's will that, that there would be men who are leading the church with the title of, yes, you all are mine. I am your pastor. You are my people. I am your pastor. You are our church. You are my flock. This is what the Bible says. It's God's will. And we know a little bit about being an elder or a pastor uh, according to God's will. Remember at 1 Timothy chapter 3, where I said the qualifications of a minister are listed, verse 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1 says, if anybody aspires to be a pastor, an elder, he desires a noble task. Good desire. Just like we celebrate if anybody in our congregation says, I think God's calling me into the ministry. We think, yes, praise the Lord. It's good. But then James chapter 3, verse 1, remember 3, 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1, James 3, 1, James pushes back a little bit and says, wait a second, not, not many of you should desire to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that those who teach will be judged with a greater strictness, James 3, 1. It is no light matter. It doesn't mean you've got to be good. It means it's heavy. It is no light matter to stand up here and say, hey, listen, life or death hangs in the balance. You going up to heaven or down to hell is real talk. Listen to me. I'll point you in the right direction. That's no light matter. And James warns against anybody wanting to take that responsibility on them. If you ever get an opportunity to teach, if you ever have the desire to be a teacher of the Word of God, May I give you one simple encouragement. Don't venture away from this. The greater judgment and the greater strictness that will come upon those who desire to teach the Word of God will be met with severity when they have erred from this. And though the world may turn its back on the Word of God, may those who believe it cling to it. Peter says it's God's will that there would be leaders, elders, pastors. But look what it says there, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God, in verse 2. What a statement. 
He reminds the elders who have a great responsibility, this is not your flock. And yet you just heard me say, Pastor, my people. And Peter reminds very quickly, this is not your people. Now the Bible does at times refer to your church as your people. Paul tells Titus, those are our people. So not altogether wrong in even using that wording. But he says here, this is the flock of God. The First Baptist Church of Fairdale, before it is Josh Green's flock, is the flock of God. There was a time where Josh Green was not around being your pastor, and there will be a time when Josh Green is not around being your pastor. This is God's flock. This is the flock of God. This is the flock that God owns. I want to ask you, is your allegiance to God? Is your allegiance, is your allegiance to a man? Do you realize that you are in the flock of God? Peter reminds here early to those who are called to be leaders in the fiery trials that this is God's will. That this is God's will for you to be the one leading in the trials that you're going to face. Listen, I don't know what 2015, the remaining six months has. You know, July 1st means we just entered into the second half of the year. We just finished six months. So we're in the second half now of 2015. I don't know what 2016 or 2017 or 2020, 2030, I don't know what the future holds. None of us do. But fiery trials may come. And God wants us to not be wimpy or weak or even running away from Him. God wants us to commit ourselves to the truth. And it is God's will that you would have leaders leading you in the right direction through it. Those people are called elders, your pastors. One pastor in the South in the 1800s, R.L. Dabney, was Presbyterian, speaks about a call to ministry being a scriptural call. And Josh Powell is the one who first showed me this. And Dabney says that a real call to ministry is somebody that has a scriptural call. And here's what, he, here's what he means if you read his article on this. He's saying, people who are called by God are those who have read in the Scriptures that God calls people into ministry and they know He is saying this to me. See, some of y'all read a call to ministry in the Scriptures and think, yep, He does that to some people. And some of us read that and say, He's talking about me. When you read this passage, I exhort the elders among you, almost every one of you thought, He's talking to Josh. When I read this passage, I think, He's talking to me. I am the elder among you. And it is God's will that I would be your leader. Number one, it's God's will that there would be elders among the church. Number two, here's how they ought to be. Willingly. Number two. Look back at verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Here's one thing that he says. Exercising oversight. Must be active in seeing and caring and being involved in your lives. Must know you. You must know me. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Does everybody see the word willingly there? Willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Pastors must be those who are eager and willing to be pastors. Pastors must be those who are eager and willing to know you and love you and care for you and lead you in the midst of the fiery trials. 
We're not trying to be a church, or we're not going to be a church where nobody sins. We are going to be a church where people sin, and we know that. And yet it is still God's will for us to have leaders in the church who say, I'm glad to. Glad to help you out. Glad to meet with you on a Saturday morning on our day off for a couple of hours if that's what it takes. Glad to walk through the trenches of suffering. Glad to get my messy life into your messy life and have messy lives. Peter describes to these elders, of which he says he is one, a fellow elder with them, that elders must do it willingly. Not under compulsion. There's not a, well, I I got to. You know, it really is a big ball game this Wednesday night. I sure wish I could go, but y'all know I got to be at church. I just got to be there. You know, I really, really wish that I didn't have to, but I got to go spend some time with them, teach them the Bible, a little bit of one-on-one discipleship, something like that. I'll try to get in and get out, not really know them. I'll just send them an email, and hopefully we don't have to get heart-to-heart, don't really care what's going on in their lives, and if they answer back nicely, it's all, all's good. This is not what pastors really are. Pastors are those who are not living under compulsion. Pastors are those who want to do this thing want to know people, want to lead people to closer to Christ. He also says that they don't do it for shameful gain. They do it eagerly. There's not a dishonest motive. Finances aren't driving this. You know, one of the real common characteristics, and and, and I don't even have to name any, your mind will go to several. One of the real common characteristics of false teachers in our country is their love of money. The people that I would say are teaching false things according to the Bible are in love with money. One pastor in America just recently asked his congregation to buy him another jet, a $60 million jet, so that he could privately reach the world for Jesus. And they did. They came up with it. And he got it. Many Christians told him, this is, this is not good, you shouldn't be doing this. He insisted. They justified it. It's a characteristic often of false teachers. I don't agree with what he teaches, not just on money, but what he teaches about Jesus and sin and salvation. It's a characteristic of false teachers, those who don't teach what the Bible says, that they love money. And and Peter says here, pastors can't be out for shameful gain. They must do it eagerly. It must be their heart's desire, I'll do it whether you pay me or not. It must be their heart's desire that no, this is what I really desire to do. Peter says, they must be willing to be pastors. John MacArthur says that there are three major temptations for pastors. Listen. Three major temptations for pastors. Number one is laziness. Number two is finances. Number three is being a demagogue, which is somebody that leads with wrong power, wrong motives, or wrong passions. Three major temptations out there for pastors. Peter says, Elders, listen. People in the world are dealing with real issues. 412 calls them fiery trials. And we must lead people according to grace and according to truth so clearly that they don't think something strange is coming upon them when the fiery trials come. 
But according to verse 419, they would want to suffer according to God's will while they entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Can you picture a pastor leading church people to entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while they are suffering for doing good if their hearts are not sincere? If their motives are questionable? If they are for shameful gain or they are doing it under compulsion? No. But are there churches and are there pastors where the pastor leads willingly and eagerly and the people are growing in the Word of God, standing in the grace of God? Absolutely. One should never have to question their pastor's heart. I had some friends a couple years ago in another state call me. They kept calling, complaining about all these things going on in their home church. You know, uh, the youth program's not doing really well. And they got this lady singing in the choir. I don't think she should be singing in the choir. You know, those type of complaints. And they would call me all the time complaining about what they thought about their home church. Their church. And I finally said, well, how's, how's such and such, the pastor? I know him. They said, oh, he's, he's wonderful. He, he's such a good pastor. I said, well, you, you mean that? They said, yeah. I said, well, can't you trust that he's doing the right thing? He's probably got a lot more going on with that situation than you can imagine. He's probably been in more meetings than you can picture. And he's probably, if you trust his heart, he's probably through prayer doing what he thinks is the right thing of God to do. I said, listen, I know there's a lot of pastors out there where you don't trust that about them. But I asked you before I said this, do you like Him? Do you trust Him? They said, yeah, absolutely. He's wonderful. I trust His heart. I said, well, if you trust His heart, trust Him in this situation too. He's not leading the church for some big name. He's not leading the church to to get rich. He's leading the church because this is God's will eagerly, willingly wanting to lead people to trust in Christ and follow Him. So that when the fiery trials come, they'll entrust their souls to a faithful Creator. That helped them. They haven't called with any more complaints. Elders leading the church through persecution and suffering should understand it's God's will. They should understand they do it willingly. And then thirdly, they do it with people watching. They do it with people watching. They are examples to the flock. Look at verse 3. He says they should not do it domineering over those in in their charge, but being examples to the flock. They are not to be mean bosses. They are not to domineer their leadership over people. They are not to say, you do it because I said to do it. Nobody tells me. I make the decisions around here. If that's what I say, then that's what I say. It's not the leadership of a pastor. They're not to boss people around. They're to show people what Jesus is really like. Jesus is the ultimate example of shepherding. He's the ultimate example of leadership. He's the ultimate example of influencing people. And yet He was humble and even the most humble. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, says to the entire Corinthian church, you guys imitate me as I imitate Christ. What a heart. What a desire. Many of us would say, I will never tell anybody to imitate me because it sounds arrogant. 
Well, there's nothing arrogant about the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. So if your eyes and your devotion is so centered on I'm going to be like Christ, then that is I'm completely denying arrogance. Follow me as we submit ourselves to everybody. The Bible says Jesus had submitted Himself to every single person. Everybody. So saying imitate me as I imitate Christ is hardly arrogant. It's saying let's get low. Let's get low. Let's get low. Let's go find somebody that we can get lower than. That's what Paul would say. This is what Peter's referring to. As you try to lead these people who are going through trials, people who are hurting, people who are searching, people who are crying out for relief and comfort, looking for grace from God, you cannot lead them in a domineering manner. You must do it in humility. Because people are looking to their pastor to lead them in the right direction. I hope that many of you feel stronger in Christ now than you were six years ago, twelve years ago, as a result of me being your pastor. I hope that this community is drawing closer to God through me being the pastor. Because Peter says here that I am an example to the flock. And we learn to deal with people and we learn to deal with circumstances and we learn to deal with fiery trials by the example that our pastor or pastors are to us. One of my mentors in college when I was 20 years old was David Rogers. I've talked about him before. He was the one who was doing part-time ministry and part-time law. He had tons of money. And, all, and, him, and him and his wife were living in a house and in cars that they could afford because he was a lawyer. And then all of a sudden he said, wait a second, honey. If I change jobs and make a whole lot less money, we could do way more for Jesus. We'd have more time. We'd have more freedom. We would have more money to be able to give away because we would live much simpler. Let's do that. He was teaching at the little college that I went. He's the one that taught me New Testament Greek. I asked him if he could mentor me for a year. He said, yeah. He started giving me books all the time. He started taking me out to lunch. He was just spending time with me. I'll never forget David Rogers. He was such a man that was happy. He loved his kids. I saw that he exercised. He paid his bills. He was a good guy. He loved missions. He went on mission trips himself. I'll never forget the example that David Rogers was to me. I think about Danny Aiken who has four sons. All four of his sons love, love him as his dad, as their dad, love their mom. All four of his sons are heavily involved in church life. I think about he as a pastor, the example that he was to his children. I think about Steve Cowden, who none of y'all have ever heard of, I don't believe. He is the pastor of a local church in Greenville, South Carolina. That's where I went to college. That's where my wife Val went to college, went to church while she was in college. Steve and his wife on every Friday night would say any college students that wanted to could come over. He would teach from 10 to 12. They'd do a potluck on Friday night. At midnight they'd break and say if anybody needs to leave, they can. At 1 they'd start back. He'd go 1 to 3 a.m. on Friday nights teaching the college students. There would be 10, 20, 30, sometimes 40 college students at his house on Friday nights as a pastor. College students wanted to hear the truth. They wanted to grow in the Word. He said, I'm going to do it. I can sleep in on Saturday. Nothing really to do. I think about the example that he was to so many. I think about me and Valeria having so many friends that are our age that were college students who are strong believers in Christ walking with the Lord because 
this pastor was willing to spend lots of time with them. What an example he has been to me and to my wife. Peter says, the goal is for humans to entrust their souls to the faithful Creator. That's the goal. You ought to be such an example to them. You can't do that domineering. We're not trying to run a ship or a program here that produces success. I don't even know what that means. It's not even on our radar. We're trying to get to know Christ according to His Word. And may we be examples of that. So, in talking to the elders, he says three things that they ought to do or, or be. They ought to know that it's God's will for them to be a pastor. They ought to do it willingly for the sake of the church. And they ought to be knowing that people are watching. They are examples to the flock. And then in verse 4, he goes away from that and gives a big answer, well, why or how? Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I think I've mentioned this every passage that we've preached from 1 Peter. Peter has the end in perspective. Peter has big things in perspective. He has the judgment in perspective. Here's why we do what we do. Because you're going to stand before God. God is going to pass out crowns to those who have done well. Many of you know the passage from Matthew where Jesus says... As we stand before Him in judgment, the great white throne judgment, He will say, depart from Me, I never knew you, or well done, My good and faithful servant. Revelation 4 gives us a picture of all of the redeemed before the throne of God in heaven casting our crowns back at His feet. Because we got crowns being rewarded for our faithfulness to God, but because our faithfulness was empowered by His righteousness, we give our crowns back to Him. Rewards are real. People, humans, will get rewards from God one day if they have lived their lives by faith, by grace, by the forgiveness of sins for Him. And Peter keeps this in perspective on how we pastor our church in the midst of fiery trials. So the next time somebody is committing adultery or the next time somebody is talking bad behind your back, we need to keep in mind that God has answers for that, that the truth is real, and it is my responsibility to keep all of us steered to the truth. Because one day God is going to reward or judge us based off how we handled that. The fiery trials are not a surprise to us. As last week's passage says, it's not some, oh me, woe is me. It's just so hard to be a pastor. Or it's so hard to be involved in a church. He says the chief shepherd will appear. It's the only place in the whole Bible where we have chief shepherd. But we know who he's talking about. Jesus. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Many times Jesus calls Himself the shepherd. Many times Jesus calls Himself the good shepherd. Many times, One time Jesus is described as the great shepherd of the sheep. One time He's described as the chief shepherd. I like that word. Chief is a good word. There is no question what chief means. Top dog. The one in charge. Peter says, listen shepherds, I'm a shepherd too. Here's how we got to handle our sheep. The chief shepherd's coming. That'll put things in perspective, won't it? Sometimes we have a tendency to think, well, let's just dismiss it. Let's just overlook it. Let's not deal with it. I'd rather not. That's going to be dirty or messy or heavy. 
somebody's going to get hurt? What if they get upset at me? Those kind of secondary worries take a way back seat to a greater worry or a greater concern or a greater burden. This shepherd will answer to the chief shepherd one day. My allegiance better be to Him. John MacArthur says that when, the, when Jesus, the chief shepherd, appears at the second coming, He will evaluate the ministry of pastors at the judgment seat of Christ. Tom Schreiner says their positions of leadership are a responsibility. They are not a privilege by which to advance their own status. Being the pastor of a church is not an opportunity for me to make a name for myself or for the world or for the community or people around to think well of me. It is a responsibility to do well to you. This is what Peter is saying. Peter says the fiery trials are coming. And since they are elders... Here's how you've got to be for the sake of your people. And now look lastly at verse 5 and we're done. He shifts back away from elders. Many times people try to disconnect verse 5 from this passage, but I think it goes with it. Likewise connects it to everything he just said. Elders, likewise... Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He then turns to the other people who aren't the elders. He says, likewise, be subject to the elders. In Peter's mind, he says, the elders know the weight of this. Elders, I'm an elder too. Here's how we've got to be. And then he turns back to the people and says, you too, follow your elders. Submit to your elders. He says to do it like this, clothe yourselves. This word, clothe yourselves, just gives an image of us putting something on and tying it in a knot, tying a bow, putting it on literally. But he says to clothe ourselves, all of us, with humility. Humility is what I've already described. It is an attitude that one is not too good to serve. It's an attitude that there's nothing below me. I'm not too good for anything. It says all of us to close ourselves. It gives, a, it gives a picture. It gives a picture of you and I putting on humility. And just like I began, it's hard to be the part if you don't look the part. You can't be a superhero if you don't have one of a costume in a kid's eyes. Listen, you can't be a humble follower of Jesus, submissive to your elders, a healthy part of the church, if you haven't put on humility. To give that some weight... He throws in a quote from Proverbs 3. 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know of any other passage in Scripture that is as short and simple that comes as such a hammer. God opposes the proud. At any moment of pridefulness, when you hear that, it will drive you to despair. It will drive you to your knees. It will drive you to perspective. When we hear Proverbs 3.34 quoted in 1 Peter 5.5, God opposes the proud, we ought to bow our heads and say, Father, have mercy on me. And then we hear, He gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves before God, He will lift us up. That's the very next verse that we'll get into next week. The reality is that fiery trials are coming. That's real. That's what life is like. We're not to try to avoid those. We're not to think they won't happen to us. We don't entrust our souls to a faithful Creator while doing good for 419. Peter says, elders, lead them well so that as looking at your example, they would be humble people clothed in humility toward one another. Tom Schreiner says, smooth relations in the church can be preserved if the entire congregation adorns itself with humility. When believers recognize that they are creatures and sinners, listen, when believers recognize that they are creatures and sinners, they are less apt to be offended by others. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. On the contrary, pride gets upset when another does not follow our own suggestions. In the face of suffering that you went through, that you may be going through now, or that you will face soon, Peter says, Pastor Josh, lead the way. Peter says, elders of the churches, lead the way. And then he says, church, Clothe yourselves in humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And maybe you're here today and you've never thought about it on that level. Maybe you're here today and you've never become a believer in Jesus. You've never submitted yourselves to Christ, therefore you've never submitted yourself to anybody else. But for spiritual reasons, today God is working in your heart. If you want to be forgiven of your sins and become a Christian, you can do that today. If you want to be a member of our church, you can start that process today. As we sing this final song, let's all respond to what the Word of God is teaching us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for how the Word addresses us with what we're going through and what we're dealing with. God, thank You for the example that elders should be in our lives. Father, make us a humble people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.